As we have seen the past few Sundays, the author of this letter is John the Apostle, who was on the Isle of Patmos, as he puts it, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Not because of his preaching, not because of what John has said, but because of what God has said, because of what Jesus has testified to. And it is here on a particular day, the Lord's Day, that the Spirit brings John into a state of prophetic vision. John is ordered to write down what he sees and send it to the seven churches in Asia. As we noted last Sunday, throughout the book of Revelation, John hears before he sees, and he hears a voice telling him what to do, and then he turns around and he sees the seven lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands is someone like a son of man. This man, this person, speaks to John words of comfort, First, he placed his right hand on me, John says, which reminds me of my favorite story in the Gospels, the healing of the leper, the man who comes to Jesus and says, if you want to, you can make me clean. And Jesus answers by touching him and then saying, I am willing. And Jesus heals him. And then the Son of Man says to John, do not be afraid. And here we have words of assurance and peace, much as what John heard after the resurrection of Jesus. Then he is given words of instruction about the divine nature of this person in the midst of the lampstands. I am the first and the last language that is found in the book of Isaiah three times about Jehovah. His humanity, I was dead. The coming of Jesus into the world really happened. Jesus really was here. He has not forgotten that he was here in the world and that he suffered on behalf of his people. It instructs John about the resurrection life. Behold, I am alive forever and evermore. He was dead and is now alive. This is the effect of the resurrection. This is not mere resuscitation, but transformation, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15. And then we are told of his authority. I hold the keys of death and Hades. The keys imply power and authority. Jesus has authority over death and Hades, the place where the dead are until the day of resurrection. Then we find the commission that is given to John. Write, therefore, what you have seen. I believe that is the vision. What is now, that I think is what we see in chapters 2 and 3, the state of the seven churches at that point. And by the way, last Sunday I said that this uh, referred to what the vision signified, and it may be, but I think in light of what we see in chapters 2 and 3, I think that John is supposed to write about what is now the state of the churches as he writes in chapters 2 and 3. What will take place later, this is the whole theme of the book, what must soon take place, the reason for this letter, to prepare God's people for what is ahead. And then the mystery is revealed because we saw that this man is in the midst of the seven golden lampstands and in his right hand he holds seven stars. And I didn't deal with this much last Sunday, so I thought I would deal with it today and sort of to get us a running start into chapter two. The seven stars, John is told, are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. I think the second one is pretty much self-explanatory. It is the first one that the seven stars are the angels that is less clear. 
The NIV has a footnote that says messengers, and indeed the word angelos in Greek uh, is used for human messengers in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels. This is a rather common word. But I don't think that's what is intended here. There are different opinions as to what this refers to. Some have suggested it, that it is, in fact, the pastor of each church, that the angel of each church is the messenger, the pastor of that church, or the eldership, the government of that particular church. Some have suggested it is the guardian angel of the church. But we're not told that churches have guardian angels anywhere in Scripture. Some have suggested that these are the seven men who are taking the seven letters to the seven churches. Um, we are not told that there are such men. And in fact, as we saw the geography of the seven churches, you only need one man because the seven churches are in a semicircular route of the postal system of that day. I think to understand what is intended here, we need to look at the following. First of all, the letter to each of the seven churches begins with to the angel of the church in such and such a place. If you look at chapter 2, verse number 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. But then if you go to the end of the segment for each church, here it is in verse number 7, here, or he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so it is addressed to the angel, but then it is the church that is supposed to hear what is being said. Thus, the message to the angel of the church is a message to the church. After we get past chapter 3, we will see angels all over the place. And these are supernatural beings, created beings. I don't think that that, that is what is intended in this particular... I think there's a very big difference. If you look at verse number 16 of chapter 1, we are told that the Son of Man holds seven stars in his right hand. Um, some people say the seven stars, uh, the constellation Pleiades... But I believe it refers to the seven churches. And so do the seven golden lampstands. That is, we have two symbols that refer to the same thing, the seven churches. And you might say, well, why, why the repetition? Well, the seven stars in his right hand speak of possession. As one writer puts it, his protective possessiveness. Just as Jesus told his disciples, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch or pluck them out of my hand. Regarding the church, Jesus said the gates of hell will not overcome it. And here, I believe the church is pictured as being in Christ's right hand. It is his possession and nothing can harm it. The seven golden lampstands, of which he is standing in the midst, refer to his presence. So, as we read of the churches in chapters 2 and 3, we have a double sense that, first of all, they are his possession, and he holds them in his hand, and secondly, he is in the midst of them. His presence is there with these churches. Today we will look at the letter to the church in Ephesus. And follow along, if you would, as I read verses 1 through 7 here in chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you, 
you have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. First, some background to the city of Ephesus, which I think is important and will help us as we go through this. Ephesus was a city of great commercial importance. It was a river port. It was uh, located at the mouth of the Keister River. It was a seaport having a natural harbor, uh, one of the great seaports of the ancient world. Three major uh, roads of that time converged on Ephesus. The one that came uh, from the east, from the Euphrates. It brought trade from the east. Then you have one that comes up down from the north, from Galatia. It brought trade from the northern part of Asia Minor. And then one from the south, which was more for local trade from one valley, the Meander Valley, up to the Keister Valley, where Ephesus was located. So it was a place of great commercial importance. Secondly, it was a place of great political importance. It was known as the supreme metropolis of Asia. It was a free city. Uh, Rome had granted it the right of self-government within its limits. Roman soldiers could not be compulsorily quartered there. Uh, as they did elsewhere in the, um, the empire. You were forced to take soldiers. This did not happen in Ephesus. Ephesus had its own magistrates. It had a democratically elected uh, governing body. It had an assembly of all its citizens. It was a place where justice was dispensed. And as the Roman governor would sort of make his circuit, uh, Ephesus was one of the places where he would make judgment. Ephesus was also a place of great religious importance. Its glory was the temple of Diana or Artemis. Remember in Acts chapter 19, uh, when there is a riot and, and people are screaming out loud for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. During John's time, it was the time of the third temple of Artemis, and it was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There was an image of Artemis, which actually was not very attractive. It was this, uh, perhaps a meteor, meteorite, this black, squat, uh, repulsive image. It was said to have fallen from heaven. No one quite knew where it came from. It was just this ancient rock that had been there and became the center of worship. The religion of Artemis was sexual, sexual immorality as a form of worship. There are two things I would add about religion in Ephesus. Uh, first of all, the temple of Artemis had the right of sanctuary or asylum that any criminal who got to within 200 yards of the temple before being arrested would be secure and could not be touched by the authorities, which meant that the temple area in Ephesus had, just as one writer puts it, the choicest collection of criminals of that time, not sort of a pleasant place that you'd want to be. Secondly, the temple was the center for the sale of Ephesian letters, which were charms for specific desires. If you wanted a safe journey, if you wanted success in your business, if you wanted a cure from a disease, you would go to the temple and buy these charms. And the PR was that these things would help you get what you wanted. It was in this context that the church of Ephesus was started and it flourished. 
On Paul's second missionary journey, he visited Ephesus, and on his next missionary journey, he stayed there and taught for three years. And the church flourished in spite of many difficulties. You know, sometimes we complain. We say that it is hard to be a Christian in the modern world. Well, the Ephesian church not only existed, but it grew in a pagan environment, an environment of commercial success, a commercial center, a communication center, and a religious center as well. And I think there is much we can learn from the Ephesians. At the beginning of each letter, the person speaking, who is Jesus Christ, is described in different ways. And we have one of two options. Either to think that John's just sort of breaking up the monotony so it doesn't sound the same every single time. Or, in fact, that the aspects that are mentioned are mentioned specifically in connection with Christ's relationship with that specific church. Here, he, described, he is described as him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the golden lampstands. Holds, as I said, points to his power and his possessiveness. They are his church. But here I think it is the power, it is the authority that comes through. As you saw in verse number 5, if you do not repent, I will, come, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And we know as the one who holds the seven churches, he has the power to do this. And so he is to be taken seriously. And then he is mentioned as the one who walks among the golden lampstands. In chapter 1, he's, he's just sort of standing there and he's talking to John. But here he is pictured as one who walks among the golden lampstands. Walking in scripture is a sign of communion. I think the first time it comes to our attention is in Genesis when we are told about the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Paul asked the question, how can two walk together except they be agreed? And John in his first epistle says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And so the letter opens with a sense, I think, of genuine communion between Christ and his church in Ephesus. And within that context, he now speaks through John to that church. And here's the message. It begins, I know. And each letter begins with this affirmation. As the one who is among the lampstands, he knows. And what does he know? He knows the condition of the church. First, he speaks of the positive aspects of the church in Ephesus. I know your deeds. Um, in five of the seven messages to the churches, Christ makes the statement, I know your deeds. And it refers to the way that they are living their lives, the general conduct of activities in the church, um, sort of a general course, the overall picture, I know what's going on there. I know your hard work, uh, literally the work that leads to exhaustion, to weariness. You cannot tolerate wicked men. You have tested those who claim to be false apostles and are not. You have found them to be false. In short, they have preserved the orthodox faith. They have kept the faith from being diluted by false teachers who come in with wrong behavior and wrong teaching. It has been noted that of all of Paul's letters to churches, the one to the Ephesians is the only one that does not mention a single doctrinal issue that needs to be corrected. All the others have some doctrinal issues that Paul needs to correct. This is not the case with the Ephesians. In Acts chapter 20, the last time that Paul saw the Ephesian elders, 
He said to them, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Well, the Ephesians did precisely that. They had, in fact, persevered. They had watched out for false doctrine and false teaching, and they had not tolerated tolerated it. In this specific case, we are given a specific group that had come in, the Nicolaitans. Paul says in verse, um, John says in verse 6, you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I think it's worth mentioning that the church's political, or I'm sorry, their religious intolerance in the midst of religious pluralism was as politically incorrect then as it is today. In a world in which it didn't matter what religion you followed, the people of God said it absolutely does. And if you do not follow that which is correct, then you must be put out. We know little or actually nothing about the Nicolaitans, except for the fact that in the letter to Pergamum, a connection is made between, apparently made, between the teachings of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Those who held to the teaching of Balaam uh, said that you could eat meat that, or eat food that was sacrificed to idols and you could commit sexual immorality. And so we suspect that this is the teaching of the Nicolaitans and the Ephesians would not put up with it. They would not tolerate it. Even though some of the Nicolaitans had claimed to be apostles, the Ephesians had tested them and said, no, you're not. You're actually false apostles. John goes on to say, you have persevered, you have endured hardships for my name, you have not grown weary. They have continued in the faith. But there is something that needs to be corrected. Yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. What does this mean? Uh, as we've said, in looking at the book of Revelation, we are not free, and we're not anywhere in Scripture, but certainly not in the book of Revelation, to sort of put our own interpretation, perhaps from our own life experience, uh, as to what this means. So if we look in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2, the Lord reminds Israel of their honeymoon during the time in the wilderness. Jeremiah 2, verse 2. How as a bride you followed me, uh, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert. But there, in Jeremiah's context, Israel had had a relationship with God, but now they had left God. They had committed adultery by getting involved with idolatry. They had broken their marriage vows. This is not the problem with the church in Ephesus. It will be with other churches among the seven, but it isn't the problem with the Ephesians. They have stood for sound doctrine. So it would seem that the first love that they have left is not love for God. It is much more likely that the first love that they have abandoned is love for other people. The word love appears only twice in the book of Revelation. Here and in the letter to the church at Thyatira. 
And there, at the, the, the section for Thyatira, we find two pairs, love and faith, service and perseverance. That is, as perseverance demonstrates faith, service also demonstrates love. In Matthew 24, when Jesus spoke of persecution and its effects, and I think when we read it, we don't usually think of it in this context, but this is what he says, then you will be handed over to, the per- to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. That is, a church that is surrounded by enemies, a church that is enduring persecution, a church that is watching out for false teachings and false teachers may end up getting so involved with that that they have neglected that which is of primary importance, and that is love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. This, I think, is what Jesus means when he says to the Ephesians, you have left your first love. And so what is the solution? Well, we hear a call to correction Three imperatives, three commands. First of all, remember. The grammar indicates keep on remembering. Remember the height from which you have fallen. You see, it is possible to slip away gradually without realizing what has happened. And a useful way to counter this is to go back and to remember what it was like at the beginning. As we have seen over the years here in different studies, remembering is not simply a mental activity not simply a matter of memory. It has a very strong moral and ethical component to it. So first, they are to remember it. Second, they are to repent. And if, if I say to you, repent, what, what is involved with that? Well, in part, to acknowledge that we have done something wrong. Secondly, to have sorrow for the failures, for the things we have done wrong. And thirdly, to change our thinking and our actions. And the Ephesians are called to do just that. To acknowledge that they have left their first love. To repent and to be sorrowful over that. And then to change their thoughts and their actions. The third imperative here is do. You see, sorrow for what you have done wrong is not enough. And remembering is not enough. This intellectual, oh yes, back in the beginning it was like this. Repentance must be demonstrated in action. And here the actions are spelled out. Do the things you did at first. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians and he spoke of maturity, spiritual maturity, he said, then, when we have reached maturity, then we will no longer be infants tossed to and fro by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. In other words, the false teachers, the false teaching. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. John in his epistle, chapter 3, said, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? 
Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. In chapter 5 of 1 John, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. Return back to what you used to do. And what was it that you used to do? You used to do those things that demonstrated your love for the people of God. And Thyatira is described as service. In 1 John, it is described as helping those in need. But it is not merely lip service to say, oh, I love you, my brother and my sister. We are one in Christ. It is to do that which love requires. As we saw when we went through 1 Corinthians 13, Paul spells out, this is what love does. And what love does is what love is. If the Ephesians refuse to do this, or if they fail to do this, um, a threat is given. The lampstand, Christ's presence with the church, would be taken away. And for the Ephesians, this threat, I think, resonated far more than it does with us and that it probably would with other people. In their history, because of where it's located at the mouth of the Kester River, over the centuries, uh, sand, pebble, rocks would come down, silt would come down, and would slowly build up a delta there in the mouth of the river, threatening to take away the natural harbor that Ephesus had and turning it into a marsh. And if that happened, the city would be cut off from the sea and would no longer be a seaport. Two centuries before, the Ephesians had engaged in this huge engineering project in which they dredged up the harbor. It cost hard work, perseverance, and great hardship. But it paid off because, once again, they were this great seaport that people came to do business at. In the middle of the first century, however, about 15 years before John writes this, the harbor had begun to fill up again. And it became apparent that if Ephesus didn't do something about it, the citizens, if they did not repent, if they didn't change the way they were doing things, if they didn't do the work that had been done two centuries before, the work that had been done at first, if they didn't do that, then Ephesus would lose its place. Ephesus would no longer be a commercial center. And so in 64 AD, perhaps the year that this book is written, perhaps the year before, the Ephesians once again begin to dredge the harbor. And they clean it out, and for years to come, it remained a great seaport. However, if you go to Turkey today and go to the ruins of Ephesus, you will find the ruins of Ephesus six miles from the sea. It is no longer a seaport. Because at a certain point, the Ephesians stopped doing what was necessary to keep them in a place of prominence. I think John's words, the threat, if you don't do something about this, the lampstand will be taken out. I think they got that right away. Because as a city, they, they faced the threat of losing their position in the world community. And now the church is being told, if you do not repent, if you don't do the things you're supposed to do, the lampstand will be taken out from you. And then in verse 7, we have the call that we find in all the seven letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
It is an expression of personal challenge that I think is not simply for the Ephesians, but those of us today, as we read this, we need to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not simply the church in Ephesus, but to the churches. It is worth noting that the last word from Jesus to the church in Ephesus is not a threat, but it is a promise. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To him who overcomes. The idea of overcoming is a dominant theme in John's writings. Uh, He uses it at least 17 times in his various writings. For Paul, the dominant theme seems to be faith. That's the word that keeps coming up. For John, it is overcoming. I'm convinced they mean the same thing. They're not two separate things. They mean the same thing. That the Christian faith, John sees it in light of victory or overcoming. This is what he wrote in his first epistle. 1 John 5.4 For everyone born of God, that is everyone who has faith, everyone who is a child of God, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. In Revelation, it is not, the dichotomy isn't between overcoming victory on the one hand and defeat on the other. It is between overcoming and victory on the one hand and treason on the other. Because Christ will win. Christ has won. And the question is, will we side with him and overcome? Or will we in fact be traitors? Will we be treasonous and will we go to the other side? Perhaps because of difficulties. um, Because of persecution. In the hymn that we sang earlier. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. It's easy, I think, for us to sing those words today. But when we're faced with persecution, will we choose to suffer and overcome? That is, to believe? Or will we go over to the other side and be guilty of treason? To him who overcomes... I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. This reference recalls the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis. You remember there are two prominent trees that are mentioned, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they are cast out of the garden and they are cut off. We are all cut off from the tree of life. God puts cherubim with flaming swords flashing back and forth you will not come to the tree of life on your own. But to the one who believes, God gives the right. God opens the door. The cherubim are set aside and we are given the right to eat from the tree of life. When we get to chapter 22, John will talk about the tree of life in greater detail. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Jesus tells the Ephesians, those who overcome, those who have faith, who stand with Christ, have the right to eat from the tree of life. No longer cut off, but because of the death of Christ, the barriers have been set aside. And we can now, by God's grace, have salvation. But again, there's something else here. 
the temple of Artemis, the great wonder of the ancient world, was actually built on an ancient tree shrine. That is, before the temple was built, there was a tree there that was a shrine and people would worship there. The image of the date palm was the image of Artemis and of Ephesus. If you want to, what was their logo? If you got stationary from Ephesus, what would they have on their stationary? It would be a tree. And so I think it is no coincidence that when Jesus speaks to the people who are from Ephesus, the city of the tree, he says, those who stand with me, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. Jesus excels Artemis. He promises to those who overcome access to the tree that gives delight and eternal life. Not simply something that is in heaven and in the future, something that is very much a part of us now. We have the life of God. We have eternal life. We have eaten from the tree of life. Okay, let's wrap this up. What, what could we say in conclusion? First of all, I would just remind you of certain things that we saw. I'm very much struck by the fact that the stars are the churches and they are in the hands of Christ. That the gates of hell will not overcome it, will not prevail against it. We are the overcomers. We will not be overcome. We may be put to death. Well, we're all going to die sometime. The church may be persecuted severely. But his kingdom is forever. And the stars are in his hand. Secondly, I'm struck by the fact that he walks in the midst of his churches. Jesus made the promise that if two or three are gathered in his name, he would be there in the midst of them. And the idea is not simply that he's standing there and sort of looking over our shoulders and sort of observing us what we are doing. He is walking in the midst of the churches. He is having communion with us, if we will but let him. It is very sad, but when we get to the seventh church, the Laodicean church, Jesus is actually pictured as being outside the church. And we read that famous verse, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. They're having church and Jesus is outside. In other words, it's possible to do that. For us to gather as a congregation apart from the Spirit of God, apart from the presence of Christ. And what a tragedy that would be. Christ longs to be the one who walks in the midst of his churches. And then the, the thing that he sought to correct, they'd lost their first love, they'd left their first love. Those of you who have been with us for a while, you know that we just finished our study of 1 Corinthians. And the 1 Corinthians were severely messed up. They had real problems, real theological problems, and we, we cataloged them as we went through. Just bad teaching, bad belief, bad practice. And what, what Paul really sort of points his finger at as the key issue is love. And that's why we have 1 Corinthians 13. He spends a lot of time alone. These people did not love one another. For them, the highest ethic was knowledge, to learn, to know, to have supernatural knowledge by the gift of the Spirit. For them, that was what drove, that's what it meant to be a Christian. And Paul said, no, it isn't knowledge, it is love. 
in chapter 15, he's like, you know, you people need to come to your senses, wake up, stop sinning. They needed to love one another. But, you know, we, we went through 1 Corinthians like, well, bad theology, what do you expect? You know, if they have bad theology, then, yeah, things are going to get out of whack and, and then they're not going to love each other as they're supposed to. But then we have to swallow hard because here we have a church that is the epitome of good doctrine. The Ephesian church that has not tolerated false teaching, has not tolerated false teachers. And they have the same problem the Corinthians too. They have forgotten to love one another. Somehow I think, well, I think that many Christians believe that loving other Christians is the most natural thing in the world. It just sort of automatically happens. And can I sort of burst your bubble today? No, it's not. It requires effort. Love means doing, not simply this emotional, warm, fuzzy feeling that we may have. So I told you, I've heard people say, you know, I love the Lord. It's people I can't stand. No, you've lost your first love. How do we know that we love God? Because we love the brothers. That's how we know we love God. And I'm convinced that there are many people today who believe in their hearts that they really love God. But they do not serve one another. They do not love one another. They do not do for their brothers and sisters They do not love them. And if they do not love, as John says, you know, if you don't love somebody you've seen, how can you love someone you've not seen? Loving your brothers and sisters in Christ is of critical importance. So much so that the threat against the Ephesians is, if you guys don't correct the problem, I'm going to take my presence, I'm going to take the church out of Ephesus. I think... I think for many Christians in America today, it's wonderful to be a Christian. It's nice to have a good church. And you know what? If you get along with the other Christians there, that's sort of a plus. You know, that's, that's sort of like gravy. You know, that's icing on the cake. No. It is of primary importance that we are to love one another. We are to do for one another. We are to care for one another. It's been mentioned several times in the last month how much we need to pray for each other in the week because most of us live far apart from each other. We don't see each other. We don't know what's going on moment by moment in each person's life. We need to pray for one another. That certainly, I think, is a sign of love that we have for one another. I think we're to talk to one another and find out, is there anything I can do for you? Is there anything you need? Is there a burden I can help you carry? It is not an option. It isn't a, oh, well, that's really nice. You know what, that church, those people love each other. Isn't that nice? No, it is that which is to mark us. Jesus said the last day of his life before the crucifixion, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. So if we don't love one another, if we don't do for one another, then people have the right to say to us, you are not the people of God. And you know what? Many people in America today would say of the church at large in America, they are not the people of God. 
And I fear they might be closer to the truth than we would care to admit. Love for one another is not optional. It is commanded. It is the mark of God's people. It is the mark of the church. And if we lose that, then we will lose the church itself as Christ threatens the Ephesians. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the book of Revelation, for all its difficulties. There is much that we can't understand. And perhaps that's what causes the problem. We thank you for the church in Ephesus and for their example, those who stood for the faith, who would not tolerate false teaching in the, in the name of, of tolerance. They stood for what was right. But they were guilty of what so oftentimes many Christians are. They had forgotten to love one another. May we take to heart what we have talked about today. May your spirit work in our lives May we hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who has now given us access to the tree of life by his blood. I thank you that we could come together today to worship you and ask that your grace, your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Get your hymnals, if you would, like us to sing a hymn uh, in closing. Um, Hymn number 334. 334, be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Would you stand please as we sing this?
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.